My message today is entitled, Seeking God's Perspective. When you consider the world that we live in today, it's amazing that we all live and survive as long as we do. Amen? The external threats against us keep growing and become more intense each day. The violence, the hatred, the wars, the pestilences, the hurricanes, the floods, fires, tornadoes, diseases, the people preying on our children, the illegal drugs flooding our communities, and the growing number of characters who daily take advantage of others through scams and computer viruses and identity theft. Life is extremely challenging. Many people believe that the way to handle so much that comes against us is to retreat further into the woods. Don't talk to anybody. Get further away from everyone else and seek to become as self-sufficient as possible. But is that the answer? I mean, most of us would agree that living in a rural, rural America is safer than living in the cities. And while you might be able to minimize the external threats by moving somewhere else, it does not mean that you can run away from the internal threats against us. Wherever you go, you take your sinful nature with you. It's like trying to run away from your shadow. It's always there. Paul talks about the seeming futility of battling this relentless inner nature. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he says, For what I am doing, I don't understand. Because what I want to do, this I don't practice. But what I hate, that's what I keep on doing. Verse 18, For I know that good does not live in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present, I want to do it, but the doing of the good is not. It doesn't take long through any self-introspection to realize what Paul is describing here. Our flesh, our sinful nature, continues to try to keep us in bondage through temptations to sin, to take revenge, to judge others, to complain, to doubt, to fear, and to give more voice to our feelings rather than to our beliefs. Battling the mind, the thoughts within us, is a fight that no one is immune to. The inner man, as it is often called, seeks to pull us away from God and conform us to the world. Where everyone else in the world is stuck in the same bondage of trying to appease the flesh. Well, several chapters later, Paul tells us what we must do to face this inner battle. Romans 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we renew our minds? I believe there's three steps. Number one, most importantly, we need to listen to Jesus. 
Number two, when he speaks, we need to trust him and believe what he's saying. And then number three, we need to apply it to our lives. If you just come to church and hear a good message or go or go hear a, someone talk or read a good book, but you don't apply it to make changes in your life, then you're wasting your time. We need to listen to Jesus, believe him when he's saying it, even if it doesn't make sense. But then we have to do what he asks us to do. Thus, Jesus gives us the following lesson today in doing just that. Familiar story. I want to talk about it. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Certainly a valid question. One that we've all thought or posed at one time or another. But notice who is asking the question and why it is being asked. It's a lawyer who asked this question to test Jesus. For many people, it raises the hackles on the back of your neck at the thought of being interrogated by a lawyer. Because in many cases, lawyers already have an answer in mind. Their questions are meant to drive you to their presupposition. And while many are repulsed at the line of question that this lawyer takes here, understand that it is exactly what your sinful nature does inside each of you, each of us. So don't just judge this lawyer and think, this is my sinful nature inside of me that has the same motives and the same intentions. Luke 10, verse 26. Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? And what is your reading of it? So knowing his intentions, Jesus puts the onus back on him and turns to the Word of God. So it's something that we need to take a lesson on. We get into so many debates and arguments and try to use our own words and our own logic instead of going back and saying, I'll let God answer this question. But we need to know the Word well enough to, to give it back out. Luke 10, verse 27. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. The conversation should have ended there. If this person was truly listening to Jesus, if he was truly believing Him at His word, and if he was truly seeking to apply it to his life, but he had other intentions, and so does our sinful nature. Verse 29, But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? If I have to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? You see, he figured the word neighbor would have to exclude his enemies, those with different religious beliefs, any people group that he judged to be as less than himself, what happened here is the same temptation that we fall into if we are not careful. We are often tempted to view God's Word through our perspective, defining terms or with our logic or through the Webster's Dictionary, and interpreting passages in ways that benefit us. One of the 
often misused passages. It's not in the PowerPoint, but one of the office's passages is that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to His purpose. So people think it must be for our good. Well, sometimes it's for, it's for God's good, and sometimes we're part of the blessings, and sometimes it's a challenge for us, but it's for God's good, for His will. And sometimes difficult things happen in our life, but it's ultimately for the good of God. But because we often interpret things based on how it affects us, we, we get a wrong interpretation at times. We are not to view it through our perspective, but through God's perspective. That's why the Holy Spirit lives inside of us so He can interpret His Word through His perspective. The truth is that if we really want to know God, we need to be seeking Him from His perspective. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us and be ready to receive it with an open mind and an open heart, which means a lot of times you're going to be wrong when you go to God. Unfortunately, out of insecurity or lack of faith or whatever reason, sometimes we go to God to get God's blessing on something that we've already chosen to do. Instead of saying, God, correct me if I'm wrong, or going to God and, God, I know I'm off in something. And if if we're we're right, then God confirms us. But many people do not have an open mind when they go to God. And so they miss truth. We need to be intense about going to God with an open mind so God can speak truth to us to change us because His goal is to make us become more like Him. I don't know about you, but i still got a long way to go myself. Right? And so if God's going to change us, we have to be open to be convicted and corrected so we can be on that narrow path that leads to life. So in order to teach this lawyer and all of us a lesson on God's perspective of who our neighbor might be, Jesus tells this following parable. Verse 30. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, who wounded him and departed and left him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. How can this be? How could a priest of all people be so inconsiderate and callous? It had to do with his reading of the law and his application of it. Take it from Numbers chapter 19, verse 11. It says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. You see, because this priest thought that this man was possibly dead, or about to be dead, if the priest touched the corpse of a dead man, or if he died in his arms, he would become ritually impure. And he would defile the temple in this state. So in order to avoid ritual impurity and have to be kept out of camp for seven days and be prevented from his priestly obligations and priestly duties, he passed by the man. In other words, for him, pursuing the law was more important than sharing the love of God. But even more significant is the fact that he assumed this man was dead and beyond help. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you avoid people in your life 
and fail to share the message and the love of Jesus with them because you deem them as so far gone and beyond help. How many times do you pass on by because you don't want to get your hands dirty or be inconvenienced to upset your schedule? Luke 10.32 Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the same place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Notice that he came and looked before moving on. How many know that some people are curious but not caring? Some like to poke their nose into everyone's business but not be part of the solution. Some like to know what's going on so they can be in the know and talk about what's going on, but never surrender their comfort to get involved to help the situation. They are addicted to gossip and crave the attention from others when they have new gossip of someone else's demise or troubles to share. God warns against this very behavior. Leviticus 19, verse 16. You shall not go about as a tale-bearer, as a gossiper, among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Tell you what, you know it's a serious commandment when God stamps the end of His message with His personal statement, I am the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is, this is incredibly, incredibly important to me. I see your heart behind your actions. I see your motivation. Whoever you think that you might be fooling, you're not fooling me. Do not gossip. What I say, I mean, I am the Lord. However, like this Levite, there are still many who don't see a person in a wayward condition as an opportunity to demonstrate the love of God. They see Him as an opportunity to further feed their own sinful nature for attention, for gossip, and consequently for their own destruction. Verse 33, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Did you notice that it says he saw him? He didn't see his condition. He didn't put a label on him and said he's this. He saw him. That's how Jesus does with you. He doesn't see you as this filthy, rotten sinner, this evil person or all these conditions. He sees you first. This man, this Samaritan saw him. He saw a fellow human being in need. He didn't pause to weigh helping him versus sacrificing his agenda. He didn't assume he was dead or beyond help, even though it was now much later than when the other earlier two had passed by. But even more than this, he was a Samaritan. You see, Samaria was a place that was once built to be the capital of the kingdom of Israel. It actually occupied that position until it was captured and depopulated. And then a mingled race from Babylon and from other foreign peoples settled into the region. 
Samaritans were descendants of these alien races. Under the influence of a priest of Israel sent by the king of Assyria, Samaritans became worshipers of Jehovah. It's like the Israelites. They sought to be admitted as co-religionists to share with them in the work of rebuilding the temple and therefore to obtain like privileges as worshipers in its courts. However, their claim was refused. And then guided by an expelled priest, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. This new worship placed them at once in the position of a rival sect. And their after history shared the usual features of rivalries with great antagonism against one another. They refused all hospitality to pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. Or would, or, and they would also um, waylay and, uh, and prevent people and mistreat them on their journey to Jerusalem. They got into the temple in Jerusalem and profaned it by scattering dead man's bones on the sacred pavement. The Jews in turn looked at the Samaritans as worse than heathens. They had no dealings with them, it tells us in the Bible. They cursed them in their synagogues. They named them as a people that they abhorred. The antagonistic rivalry between these two people groups continued. We all know what rivalries look like these days. We see them all around us. Why, it's college football season. Michigan versus Michigan State. Michigan versus Ohio State. People get so wrapped up believing that their side is more worthy that they strive to tear down their opponent, slandering their name, criticizing their every move as their shenanigans get worse with every new challenge. Now imagine this on a much larger scale between the Jews and the Samaritans. As a result, the Samaritans became more and more jealous in their observance of the law. In fact, the Samaritans boasted that they actually possessed the authentic copy of the law. They even substituted Mount Gerizim for Mount Ebal in the writings of Deuteronomy to support their claim. They changed the Word of God. Ascribing evil to what the Israelites viewed as holy and good. But it went both ways. They both were antagonistic against one another because of pride. The Samaritans also maintained that their temple, and not the temple in Jerusalem, was the chosen sanctuary of Jehovah. If there were ever two groups of people that literally detested one another, it was the neighboring Jews and the Samaritans. And yet this traveling Samaritan did not filter this roadside situation through prejudice, through cultural thoughts, through judgment or through antagonism. He saw a fellow man in need of compassion. He didn't see his religion first. He didn't see his culture first. He didn't see his condition first. He saw a fellow man in need of compassion. And he knew that he had to be part of the solution to help him. 
he actually had the audacity to believe that God put him in this place at this time to be part of the solution, not to just pass on by. How many times do you have incidents in your life and it's an annoyance to you or it's a bothersome to you or you don't want to get your hands dirty instead of saying, God, did you put me in here for a reason? Now, it doesn't always happen. We have to use discernment. But more times than not, God allows things to come across our path or puts us in place for a reason to be part of the solution. If we're going to shine Jesus' light in the world, guess what? He's going to put us in areas of darkness so that we can shine his light. It's not always just an attack on our faith that we have to come against everyone who's different from us. We need to shine the light of Jesus in this world of darkness. The Samaritan didn't care what others might think about him. He was not bound by peer pressure or people-pleasing. He was moved by the heart of God to intervene. This is compassion. You see, though judgment and sin and vengeful thoughts and hatred had affected the histories of these two people groups, the Samaritans, like the Jews, were looking for the Messiah as well who would come as a prophet and tell them all things. Though there were great wounds between these rival factions of people, God could still and still does move through individual hearts surrendered to Him, seeking the Lord's perspective on how to respond to each situation. Though others may have saw this wounded man as an enemy, He saw him as a neighbor to be loved and to be cared for as himself. Verse 34. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. He went to him. He got his hands dirty. He got involved. He sacrificed his own resources. He put aside his schedule, whatever he thought he had to do, and this man became his priority for that day. How many of you would be bold enough to ask God if that's how he wants to use you? Would you sacrifice your agenda, what you think you have to do to be used by God? You see, he didn't just say he worshipped the Lord. He didn't just talk about following the law. He demonstrated the heart of God. This is what compassion is. The Bible tells us that Jesus was moved by compassion. If we are truly followers of Jesus, we need to be moved and led by compassion to get our hands dirty if need be, to interrupt our schedules, if God calls us to do so. But we need to take the time to be willing to ask God, God, is this the time? Not every time is going to be the time. But are you willing to ask God, God, do you want me to sacrifice your, my agenda for your will? Verse 35. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. He gave all of himself for the sake of this man. He truly demonstrated the love of God while expecting nothing in return. Verse 36. 
Jesus continued, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? We all know the answer. The lawyer here did too. And before you go away celebrating that Jesus humbled another person who came to him with a prideful heart and prideful words, stop and consider your own life, your own words, your own actions, your own motivations towards others. In what ways is this you? In what situations have you deemed someone as beyond help? and passed on by them? In what ways has your pride or your need to know information but not get involved prevented you from being part of the solution? You all know people that are in your life. And maybe they rub you the wrong way. I got them. You all know people that annoy you, that really know how to push your buttons. I got them too. You know people who maybe they're antagonistic against you. Maybe, just maybe God put them in your life for a reason. Could your compassion to share the love of Jesus be that reason? Could your willingness to share the gospel with that person be the reason? Could God be convicting your very heart right now to pray for that person. You know how it is. Sometimes we just rehearse in our heads what that person did to us and how they made us feel and all those things. Instead of saying, God, I'm going to put that aside. I'm going to pray unselfish prayers for this person. That this person would be blessed. That this person might get a greater revelation of who God is to them. Could God, could God be convicting your heart right now to invite that person to church or to a Bible study or to lunch? To ask that person what you could pray for in their life? Is God convicting you right now to ask forgiveness for judging certain people and failing to see them as God opportunities? divinely placed in your life on purpose by God. Luke 10:37 And he answered Jesus, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is what Jesus commands all of us to do. To show mercy, not indifference. To be led by compassion, not judgment and to see everyone through God's perspective. Listen, everyone is your neighbor. Be Jesus to the whole world. There are no exceptions. Go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, convicting us not to shame us, but to cause us to become more like You. We pray for Your grace and Your strength. We pray, God, that we would take something out of this message from Your Word today that we could be trusted as Your ambassadors in this world to reflect Jesus to the world. Lord God, we love You. 
You are our wonderful and merciful Savior that showed mercy upon us that we might do that to others as well. Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.